His grace is what clothes us with power, as we've just read, as we've just sung, to do what is right. We don't do what is right in our own strength. We do what is right in His strength. This is what it means that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That comes by God's grace. We've just sung it. What beautiful truth. Uh, Thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning. Do you have your Bible? Take it with me and go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And yes, if you don't have a sermon outline, please lift your hand and these guys are going to give one to you. I see hands going up. Go ahead and take that. If you're joining us online at any time, you can go to our website and download these notes. They are available in a PDF form, either with the answers or without them. And we pray that that is an encouragement to you to be able to follow along carefully. We are going to um, work, and this is, this is part four of this passage, and this is the last part of this passage. Why would we do four messages from roughly seven verses? Why would we do that? Um, and here's the reason. On the surface... The passage is so deep and so powerful, if it's not kind of carefully unpacked and explained, you may really miss some things. The way that we teach the Bible here in this church and the reason that we teach the Bible the way we do is because we want you to hear from God here in this setting right now. There's no doubt that we believe that God blesses the preaching of His Word when the, when the congregation is assembled. So God has been speaking to, to us each Sunday as we go. That's what He does. But there's another reason that we preach and teach the way that we do. We carefully explain the passages that we're studying so that you can know that when you're at home, when you're with your Bible, when you're at work, when you're on vacation, when you're at the beach, when you're in the middle of the night and you open God's Word and you begin to read God's Word, that number one, that every word that is here means something. There's not a stroke of the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic that does not mean God has included all of this for us. Even the parts that maybe are a little bit more obscure and you don't really understand it, if we'll study it, if we'll look at it, if we'll become students of it, God will speak. And so part of the reason we preach the way we preach is yes, to explain the text, but to also teach you it all means something and you can know what it means. God has given it to us so that we can hear from Him. And so, by our teaching, by our coming and studying, by our investigation of the text, you can say, I am learning God's Word. I am learning to read it. I'm learning to understand it. I'm learning as I go. And I hope that you are. I hope that you're not an infant little baby Christian that comes to church just to be spoon-fed. You know, you could fall into that. We've just been with little Julian, and we're going to celebrate his first birthday here in a little bit, but Julian is our grandson, and that kid has not a, teeth in his, a tooth in his head. He has no, he's one years old, he's walking around, he's, he's jabbering constantly, but he doesn't have any teeth. And so, I mean, we have to break it all down and stick it in there, and it gets run around and run around and run around. Sometimes it comes back out, but sometimes it goes down. 
And, you know, he's still just a little baby. He's a little baby that has to be hand-fed all the time. And, of course, he gets it all over himself, and he sits there and smiles, and you're just, you know, I'm sorry, I'm being a grandfather. Um, (laughs) But it's all fun, and, you know, it's really great to see him come. (laughs) It's great to see him go. Um, But, you know... (laughs) oh, wow, I can wear something and it's not going to be all over me, you know, but um, just kidding. I mean, we, we, we love that, but, you know, I want to call you to not be an infant Christian. I want to call you to learn to really read your Bible. My brother told me that this last week he interviewed a lawyer Um, that's in his family, in their men's meeting. And this lawyer that's in their family has read the Bible all the way through for the last 42 years. He's read the Bible all the way through 42 times. The man is a walking concordance. You say, what is that? That means that if you want to know a subject in the Bible, you can ask Rob Caprera about this or about that, and he can just tell you, oh, that's over in 2 Kings chapter 3, I think it's somewhere in the middle of the chapter, and that's when you see, and then he can tell you what's going on, because he has become a student of God's Word. If you will begin the discipline of really becoming a student of God's Word, and that's part of the reason we teach like this is so that you can see every word here means something and you can know what it is as we launch into this. We have been looking at this incredibly important subject of God testifying to who Jesus Christ was. So this is an important text from John. This is an important text to the gospel writer John, the disciple John. But you see, John didn't write anything that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire him to write. And so this is an important text to God, and it should be an important text to us. We need to see, and, and, and I want to draw the net closed here this morning on this fourth message so that we really see what it boils down to, that God is testifying to who Jesus is for an extremely important purpose. And I pray that there's aspects of our salvation, there's aspects of our walk with God that become more and more alive because we've spent time digging into this text. That on the surface, admittedly, you could read and go, what does that mean? The first time many of you read this, you kind of said, well, what does that mean? What What is the spirit and the water and the blood? But now that we've been through this a little bit, some of you are starting to go, oh, I know what it means, the Spirit. We have a whole sermon on what is the Spirit, the testimony of God's Spirit. And the water, what is that? That's, that's God's baptism of Christ, beginning the, the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry, headed to the cross, and the blood. Well, that is the cross. That is the great sacrifice of God for our salvation. And God, through all of this, is testifying to who Christ is is who Jesus, God the Son, 
is. So let's read the text again. This will be our last time of reading it in this particular study, and we'll be moving on to one of the most encouraging verses of all of Scripture. This whole, this whole little letter is encouraging, but we'll be moving on to verse 13 as we come to the next message. But let's look and read this again and see if it doesn't ring clearer to you because of the last few messages. Let's look and see. Notice on your, on your outline there, that chapters 5, verses 6 through 12, first of all, we've said this over and over, God's testimony of Jesus Christ, you see, a correct view of who Jesus is is absolutely essential to salvation. We've said that over and over and over again. So let's read the text in verses 6 through 12. It says, this is he who came by water and blood. Who? Okay, that was very weak. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. There's that word, testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify. Let's read it out loud together. Verse 8, the Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony, has the testimony in himself. Circle that word, in. You have the testimony in you. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is, circle it, in his son. This life is in his son. Verse 12. Whoever has the son, what does it say? Has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So we've said over these last few weeks, and I've left many of these blanks already filled in, God through John gives us a deeper understanding of his salvation. You remember, this is God's salvation that he gives to his people. And the water is representing Jesus' baptism, and this is beautiful, his willing identification with sinners. That's what God, God doesn't say, nope, not going to identify with you. Jesus, when he was baptized by John at the beginning of his ministry, is coming. Jesus didn't have any sins to wash away. Jesus didn't need the baptism except that he was being obedient to the Father and showing where he was going in three years. In three years, he was going to go to the cross, and he was going to go to the grave. And here we see that Jesus is showing the baptism, the obedience of the baptism of his coming death. It's a foreshadow of his death. And then there's the blood. This is Jesus's death, his payment for sinners, that the Son of God would lay down his life. And then there's the testimony of the Spirit, This is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He's drawing sinners to himself. 
He's drawing sinners, actually, if we were going to say to, to God in general, but to belief in Jesus Christ. We also made this statement that I think as I was studying and looking at this, I thought that this was very helpful to me, um, and I want it to be helpful to you. Last week, I said that the, we, we need to remember that God the Father purposes, God the Son accomplishes, and God the Spirit applies God's salvation to His people. So God the Father purposes the salvation of His people. God the Son accomplishes it. How does He accomplish it? He accomplishes it through living a sinless life and dying a sinful death. When Ivan was praying, he, he quoted the Corinthian passage that says these very words. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing thing that the sinless Son of God would take the sins of the world upon himself on the cross of Calvary and come and be the perfect sacrifice, satisfied, listen, satisfying the wrath of God against us. That's what it means to be saved. You're saved from the wrath of God. And it's all through belief in Him. Belief in that He's the Savior and not you, not your uncle, not your grandmother. He is the Savior, not your good works. So here is the picture of this, that the Spirit applies that to us as we've been studying. You see, fill these in. God's testimony. So what is God's testimony of Jesus? God's testimony is that Jesus, the one who walked upon the earth with us, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, and He is the Messiah of God. Put out there to the side of that, the Christ. And put out to the side of Christ, the anointed one. This is the one that was chosen. And the one that was chosen to do this is from God himself, is God himself. This is the amazing gospel, is that God doesn't let somebody else come save his people. God comes and saves his people. This is the true gospel that John wants you to see, and John wants you to understand, to have it down deep in your psyche, down deep in your heart, down deep in your mindset, that salvation comes only from God. And so he testifies to that. So he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah of God, and we see he's the only way to God. There is no other way to God. There was no other perfect sacrifice. So he is the only way to God. So as we wrap this up, I want us to reread verse 10. Well, let's go up to verse 9. We'll reread verse 9 through 12. And then I want us to see two key things here. Well, I want us to see both the purpose of God um, and uh, the great result of God's work in us, the, the, our response to that. So look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God 
has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God bore concerning himself. Verse 11 and 12, we're going to really focus on this this, in the next few minutes. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Number one, we see here the purpose of God's testimony of and to Jesus Christ. We see the reason. We see the purpose. Why does he testify to Jesus Christ? And why is he calling us to believe in Jesus Christ? And here's the purpose of it. The first part is that sinners would receive eternal life. Sinners, the Bible tells us that for the wages of sin is death. So sinners are on their way to death. They're not only on their way to a physical death, but they're on their way to an eternal spiritual death, a death that is called the second death. This is being cut off from God and punished for not being holy. And so this is the second death. And these sinners who are bound for death would receive eternal life. That's the purpose for God's testimony. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Notice that John 17, verse 3, and if, you, if you're not familiar with this, this is something you, you should become familiar with, but a lot of John's gospel, a large portion of it is is recording the events that happened just before Jesus would go to the cross. So the time in the upper room and everything Jesus said in the upper room at the Last Supper. So they were observing Passover together, and Jesus said a lot during that Passover. And John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records that for us. And then we see that they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is speaking there too. And so this is, a, this is an important time as we come up on the crucifixion of Christ. Well, part of that time is we also see here a high priestly prayer. This is Jesus praying to the Father for his disciples and for the future of the church. And notice what Jesus says in verse 17 and verse 3 of John. He says, this is what? Eternal life. And do you want to know what eternal life is? that they know you, the only true God. We've just sung about that, that he's the only true God. We open the service with Isaiah saying that this is the only true God. And so here's eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus is coming to save the world of our sin, from our sin. So the first purpose is, is that we would have eternal life. The second purpose that we see of God's testimony about this is that salvation is exclusively found in God through Jesus Christ. God wants us to know that, that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. John 14 and verse 6. Let's read John 14 verse 6 out loud together. Are you ready? Everybody clear your throat. <clears throat> ready? Let's read it strong. Don't make me do it twice. Okay, John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus makes very, very clear that he is the only ticket. He is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through his sacrifice. John, or excuse me, Acts 14 and verse 12, we see that, the, that Peter declares, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, under, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, in this regard, the Bible and God's plan is very very close-minded. You say, how close-minded of Christians to think that they, they've got it all wrapped up, that this is the only way. I, I reject that. I, I can't believe that. Well, my friends, you're rejecting what God's Word most clearly declares. And if you know the whole picture, if you're studying with us the whole picture of God's plan of salvation from creation to dealing with our fall and sin, to his beautiful plan of redemption, you're, you're, and, and the fact that he's going to restore everything back to the way it was and even better, you're rejecting quite a beautiful plan because it offends your modern sensibilities. You, you need to be very careful about that because I mean, God's Word, it, everything means something, and it fits together like lock and key. An honest scholastic study of this, honest spiritual study of this, does come together. It does make sense. You need to know what you're rejecting. I, I want to remind you that in the Greek language, that, and in Hebrew mindset as well, it was important to be narrow in your beliefs. We live in a day and time when, you know, we, we love to talk about being open-minded. You know, you just need to be open-minded. That person's not very open-minded. Well, let me tell you, from the Old Testament, those who were really open-minded and went off and worshiped other gods, it didn't work out well for them. And we see in the New Testament, over and over and over again, all these philosophies, all of these human traditions, all of these other ideas keep coming in, coming against the church of Christ. And we see over and over again, the New Testament writers, the Holy Spirit through the New Testament writers telling us, be very careful about being open-minded. In fact, did you know that the word for open-minded in the Greek language, you know what that word is? Ignoramus. <laughs> An ignoramus is open minded. Be very careful about that. And, and this isn't me saying it. It's not Christian tradition saying it. It's not Baptist or something. I, I preached a funeral yesterday for the precious Michelet Emil, and there were um, two ladies as right over here by these doors. They said to me, well, it's so great to be here. We've been here a couple times before, and they just said, you're just an old-fashioned preacher. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure how to take that. <laughs> I said, well, God's Word never changes. I don't want to change with it. 
I want to just declare it. And, and I think that they meant it as a compliment. I'm not sure if you're here, come talk to me. But um, I, I, I took it as a compliment, I guess. Um, I, if, the, if we were preaching the gospel in days gone by, then that's a compliment because we need to see that God's Word never changes. The world may reject it. The world may call it foolish. But, you know, it'd be better to be right with God and wrong with the world than wrong with the world, excuse me, than wrong with God and right with the world. So, let's, let's just see here, this, this, there's a doctrine, and this is at the bottom of your page, the exclusivity of the gospel is a very important biblical doctrine that you need to know. And you need to not be ashamed of it. You need to know it and have great confidence in it. You need to know it and be aware that some in the world will hear it and come to believe and find eternal life. And there are some who are in the world, they're going to hear it and they're going to reject it and they're going to think you a fool. They're going to think you close-minded. In fact, Sometimes they will say, you're a hater. That's the new thing, you know, you're a hater. And you say, no, I'm loving you by telling you what the eternal creator of the universe has clearly said. And if you have ears to hear it, oh, hear it and receive eternal life. Because that's the purpose of this is eternal life. So notice the next page. I hear you dutifully turning your page over. Very good. Let's go to number two. So the first part, the first thing that we see here is that God's purpose is to bring eternal life. But the second thing we see in this text is we see the response to God's testimony by sinners. And so John wants us to see, again, look up at verse 9 and 10 especially. Look at verse 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Now look at verse 10. We see this response to the truth, to God's testimony. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe. So there's the response. You can either believe it or you cannot believe it. In the middle of verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So I want us to see here that some sinners, we're looking at the response, some sinners reject God's testimony of Jesus Christ. You can skip down to the bottom there. We're going to look at this in just a minute. Some sinners accept God's testimony of Jesus Christ. But let's look at the rejectors first. We just read it in verse 10. B, whoever does not believe God has, has made him a liar. In verse 12 it says, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So not only are they not believing, but now they are, by not believing, they're saying God's testimony is not true. And so fill this in. Consider what they are rejecting. Notice what they're rejecting. They're rejecting God's Word, put above that Old Testament, OT, the Old Testament. They're rejecting God's Word that prophesied that the Messiah Messiah would come. 
And they're rejecting God the Son's incarnation. What does that mean? That's not a brand of milk. Not, no. We're not talking about Buddhism and Hinduism. What we're talking about is here God becoming flesh. That's what the incarnate means. Carne is the word for flesh. And so here we see we are, we are, when we say we don't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, we don't believe that He was God in the flesh, that's what you're rejecting. You're rejecting that He came in the flesh. And then the proclamation, you're rejecting what He taught. You're rejecting what Jesus said. You're rejecting because He testified to Himself. And he testified to himself that he would go to the cross and be raised again. And after he was raised again, he testified that he did go to the cross and was raised again. So you're, you're rejecting all that Jesus said about God and about himself. Look at those, himself specifically as the second person of the Trinity. And then you're also rejecting his sinless life. You're also rejecting his atoning death. That means to make atonement for God's people. You're rejecting his death, and you are rejecting his resurrection. Um, so let's, let's just be clear. This is, this is what you're rejecting. Now consider what this rejection means. They think that God's testimony, fill it in, is a lie. That's exactly what the text says in verse 10, the second part, letter B. Um, verse 10B says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So you're, you're saying that God is a liar. They think God is a liar. Fill that in. They think that God is a liar. Now, just so you know, when you call God the true God who created heaven and earth, the one true God, when you call him a liar, you are committing the greatest blasphemy possible. You are saying that which should never be said. Because why? Because God calls himself truth. He is truth. If Philadelphia, if God is anything, he is the truth. And it is impossible for him to lie. Now, it says that in numerous places. I've just outlined a few places here from Numbers 23 to 1 Samuel. You know, God is not a man that he can lie. He's, he's not like one who can lie. Titus 1, 2 Hebrews 6 uh, and verse 18, we see that our God is, defines himself by saying, I am the truth. And Jesus, in saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In just a moment, we're going to read that on the back page. He, he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. I mean, except through, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. So we see that Jesus saying, is saying, I'm the truth. Come to the truth. Now, I think it's also interesting for us to remember this. And you can put a big bracket around the next section here. Remember that Satan is the exact opposite of God in regards to the truth. It's just good for us to juxtapose this against what John is saying, that God is true, that he's not a liar. Well, who is the liar? 
Remember that Satan is the exact opposite of God in regards to the truth. Now, he is not the exact opposite of God in everything. You need to understand that. It's not like there's the yin and the yang here of, one, you know, that Satan is equally as powerful as God. He's just on the other side of it. He's, he's the negative force. It's not the dark side of the force versus, you know, the, the light. You know, it's not like there's some equality here. Don't let modern storytelling tell you and make you think that somehow Satan is as powerful and as able as God, nothing could be further than the truth. Our God is supremely powerful, and, and there is a, there's not an iota, there's not, there's not the smallest rivalry to God in this, except for the Father's will when he has allowed Satan to do what he does. And ultimately, in his glorious grand scheme, listen to this, in his sovereignty, which means in his standalone authority and logic, he can even use Satan for his glory, which he does. Now, when we get to heaven, we'll fully understand that. We don't fully understand that now. But here I want us to see that Jesus calls out the Pharisees who were really not interested in God, they were interested in themselves. And before we're too hard on the Pharisees, the religious leaders, this could be written to Baptist people and Presbyterian people and people that sit in Bible-teaching churches sometimes too. John 8, Jesus is speaking. He looks at the, the religious leaders and he says, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> Did Jesus mince words? Look at what he says. Okay, everybody, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there, underline it, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Oh. Sheridan Hills, don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to him in your head. Don't listen to him through modern thinking. Don't listen to him in all your entertainment. Don't listen to the devil. When he speaks, he lies. He lied to Adam and Eve, and he's lied to everybody he's spoken to. And he's lying to you. And he is called the prince of the power of the air. He is called the one, the ruler of this age. He has been given a leash that God allows him to operate in ways that we don't fully yet see and understand. We get glimpses of it. But we are told the truth that there is the truth teller of God and his word that tells us the right perspective on everything that we see around us. And there is the liar and he's a murderer, and he wants to steal your life. 
The thief, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give us life and to give it more abundantly. So we would do well to remember the exact opposite of God in regards to this truth. So it is wrong to call God a liar. It is wrong to reject his testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Is this making sense? I hope this is making sense. You see, the first one is some sinners reject God's testimony of Jesus, but happily, for the glory of God, some sinners accept God's testimony of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 10 and 12. Look what it says in first John, excuse me, John chapter 1, um, 10, 10 through 12. It says, he was in the world. This is speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, the world that was made through him. You see, Jesus is the creator God. He didn't come into existence when he was born. He was from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, and eternity passed. God the Son is with God the Father and the Spirit. So in verse 10 it says, He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, He came to his own. This is the Hebrew people that God had chosen to reveal himself to and to use. He came to his own, and his own people, what? did not receive him. You see, so he's utterly rejected even by his own. In verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we, we see that some have received him. And there were some Hebrews that received him when he came. Then there are some today that are like Gentiles, non-Hebrews, all across the world that have heard the gospel and who have received him. Now, I want you to notice this, and I've been hammering this for a while. I hope and I've prayed that this would click maybe finally and forever for some of you. What does it mean to believe in his name? Do you see that? Look at verse 12. Let's read verse 12 out loud together. I want this in your head. Look what it says in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does that mean? Who believed in his name? What was his name? His name is Jesus. What is Jesus in, in, in Hebrew? It is Yeshua. And Yeshua literally means, just right below that, quotes, God saves, or Yahweh saves. So, Jesus' name describes his function. So when we talk about believing in the name of Jesus, listen to this, when we talk about believing in the name of Jesus, that means that you're believing that God saves, and this is how he saves. He saves through Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus. There's many people who are confused about what does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? Like there's some mystical power in the name. Do you believe in the name of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe in it. Jesus, Jesus. Je you know, not really understanding what that means. No, it means God saves. God saves. You don't save. Your uncle doesn't save. Your grandmother doesn't save. Your good works don't save. The only thing that can save you is God. And he does it through a cross. So get that down in your soul, that when it talks about believing in Jesus' name, what you're saying is, I believe that there is salvation only in God, and there's no other name under heaven 
that by men and women can be saved. And for those who believe in that, he gives the right to become children of God. What is the result? Notice the last part here on on page two. What is the result of accepting God's testimony of Jesus? God's testifying to who Jesus is, and if anyone believes that, what is the result of that? Eternal life! Jackpot! Ding, 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 ding! I mean, the greatest hope that the human heart could ever have is that we're going back to before the fall. We're going back before death came in because of sin. He comes and he wipes away our sin so that death no longer rules, and he gives us eternal life. And here's the amazing part. He gives it in the present, eternal life in the present, and he gives it in the future. You see, it's not like you'll have, for Christians, it's not like you'll have eternal life one day. No, listen, he's already given it to you now. It's yours now. Sounds too good to be true, but it's not. Because Jesus said this, if anyone believes in me, though he die, and this is talking about a little physical death, though he die, yet shall he live. And I, so I, I just want you to see three passages uh, on the last page here. I want you to see three passages. I love these. Very quickly, I want you to notice these. You see, responses to God's testimony of Jesus, encircle this in Scripture. I want you to see this in Scripture. And we could go on and on all afternoon. Throughout the Bible, we could be looking at how God testifies to Jesus. But I want you to see just three of them real quick. In John 10, 22 through 30, and we, we, we've kind of already mentioned part of this, and we see similarly um, from the previous statement there. But Jesus tells it like it is. And I want you to see the response to God's testimony here. Look at verse 22. It says, at the time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So he's in this outer court, part of the temple of Solomon. He's there. In verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now think about that, the works. What works are we talking about? We're talking about when he walks up to a lame man and he says, get up. And the guy leaps to his feet, right in front of everybody's eyes. We're talking about the person who can't speak and Jesus causes them to be healed where suddenly for the first time in their life they can speak. This is a testimony to everybody. We're talking about Jesus shows up at funerals and the dead come to life. We see over and over again power that can only come from God and Jesus declares to them, that which I do, I do from God. And yet, look what it says in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Look at verse 28. 
I give them what? Eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my Father who has given them, given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Circle the verse 30. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is saying, I am God. I am here to save you, and I have some who will believe. I have some who will never believe. You say, oh, what do I do with that? What if I'm one of the ones that won't believe? That's not the right question. The right question is, do I hear the gospel and do I hear that there's a loving God who has laid down His life for me? And He invites me to believe. And the question is, will you believe? Will you come to Him? There's your answer. Will you come to Him? If you come to Him in belief, if you come to Him and you see that salvation is from God and that He calls us to live for Him and not for ourselves, well, I guess we have our answer. That you're His sheep. What a beautiful thing. Let me remind you that God needs to save and He is not obligated to save anyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God would be justified to condemn everyone, but in His grace and for His glory and for our good, He saved some. This is the beautiful grace of God. He shouldn't save any, but He saves many. Look at three crosses, one Savior and two sinner. One receives and one mocks. I love this passage of Scripture. In fact, I've put our church logo out there to the side because our church logo isn't one cross. Our church logo is three crosses. So Jesus is in the center, as the Scripture clearly says that we're going to read, and there's two sinners on either side of Him. And the two sinners could not have a more different response to who he is. And we see this imagery, and it is so powerful. This is the gospel. Look at Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He's saying, we are going to die, and you'd have no fear of God. Verse 41, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Look what it says, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your Father's kingdom or come into your kingdom. Look at Jesus' words. Can you read it with me? And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A man condemned to die for his grievous sins. We're talking about somebody receiving capital punishment. And by believing upon Christ and calling upon his salvation, he's saved at the very end. 
one receives and one mocks. And finally, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews is written to Christians saying, don't leave the gospel. Don't be impressed with the world. Don't follow other vain philosophies. Don't listen to other teachers. You know, there's so much of the New Testament that talks about that. And here we see, at the beginning of Hebrews, we see this call to be very careful. Look what it says in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. He's saying, pay closer attention to the gospel lest we drift away from it. Verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and you remember the angels, they, they testified too. They were like, he's not here, he's risen. <laughs> go and tell his disciples. Go read, your, go, go read the story of his death and resurrection. The angel said, Mary, you're going to have a child. Um, Mar- uh, Elizabeth, you're going to have a child. It's going to be miraculous. You see, his, his gospel was, was preached and announced by different angels. There, there was different gospel writers who are, who are hearing from angels. So this is, look at verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard, and while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. That means that God was getting the message out. And look what it says, and God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit attributed You see, God is bearing witness to who Jesus is. That's why this text is so important. That we need to understand this isn't just something that folks made up. This isn't just something that a good guy died for other people. This is something that is so clearly woven throughout the whole narrative from Genesis to Revelation that salvation comes only from God. And God testifies to that, and he makes it abundantly clear. And him who has ears, let him hear. So the question is, is the Holy Spirit leading you today to receive the testimony of God that Jesus is my son, Jesus is my Messiah, and he died for all who will receive him? Then I would ask you today, why in the world would you reject that? I call you today to humble your heart, to confess your sins before God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your salvation. And today, I want to turn to you and not only believe, but to receive your forgiveness and your life. So that's what John is gunning for in us. Look at these key questions. And notice this, I put here to consider, that's for you personally, and to discuss, that's with others. I hope that your family talks about the sermon on Sunday, not because I'm self-centered and wish that you talk about me. I, I want you to talk about God's Word. 
maybe a husband and wife. Marcy and I very often will talk about the Word of God, and I'm the preacher, and, and she still has to hear it. And, but no. She will say, you know, when you said this, Marcy gives very often insights that I hadn't thought about. And we are blessed as we talk about the text. Do you do that? Or do you just get up, go home, and it's not like you, you, nothing happened? Service pro, like it never even happened. I mean, is that, is that your mentality? I want to encourage you to, that's why we give you the notes too. Go home and think about this. It, there's holes in your notes. That means you can save them. And you can go back to them in the future. And if the Lord gives you an opportunity to teach a concept, you can go back and see what we said. It can help you years from now. I want to encourage you to receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. This is the word of God. Will you discuss this? Look at number one. What about you? Have you accepted God's testimony of Jesus? Do you believe him to be the Messiah? Why? Can you say why? Can you articulate that? If you say yes, does your life verify or defy that belief? Does your life reveal that you believe the gospel, or does it actually say you don't believe the gospel? Because it is possible to say with your mouth one thing and to live with your heart and your life another thing. And Jesus came warning about that. But, you know, John was written so that we can know. And that's part of the reason he talks about these things next week. I'm going to really deal with that more. But look at number two. What have you learned from 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12? I mean, we've done four sermons on it. Have you learned something from this? Have you gained, look at this, have you gained a greater understanding or appreciation for any aspects of God's salvation? I hope so. It would be good for you to talk about that as a family. Maybe go dig out the notes from the last few weeks and kind of go over them. Kind of think about that. Ask the Lord to bless that. Number three. In what ways is this passage an encouragement to believers in Jesus? It would be really good to go home and to read this passage and to think about that and to talk about that. How is this encouraging to me? How does this encourage my faith? Because I believe that that was God's intent in giving us this. Amen? Would you please stand together with me for prayer? Great God in heaven, how amazing is your salvation. Lord, you and you alone are the one who saves. There is salvation in no other name. It's only through, Lord, your suffering and your sacrifice 
that our sins can be forgiven. Lord, we sometimes foolishly think that we can make up for something we've done. The devil lies to us, Lord, about that. We've sung in the service already about your grace, grace unmeasured, full and free, that bought me before eternity. Lord, we thank you that you have sinners that you love and that you save. So Lord, I pray that this morning that you would turn sinners to saints. I pray that some would receive the gospel and be made clean. Clean and holy as only you can do. I pray that today would be the day of salvation to some, that they would repent, Lord, of their sins and stop holding out against you and simply by faith and surrender say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Oh, God, only you can do that, and I pray that you would. I pray that you would give family members the words that they need to encourage those who perhaps are responding to you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are constantly amazed by the gospel, that we never get over it, that in every prayer that we would give thanks for your Son, that we would give thanks that the tomb is empty, and that sin and death do not rule over us. But promises have been made by a God who does not lie. And Lord, I pray that we would live in that truth. That we'd live like it. That we'd be willing to reject the garbage that the world is giving to us. And that we would shine brightly the light of Christ. In Jesus' name I ask for this. Amen. Amen.